Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. This episode is a special episode. It is part of our Listening and Learning Weekend on Encountering the Scriptures Anew with Jesus as Our Lens. Over this weekend, we were joined by a special guest, Dr. Bradley Jersak. Dr. Jersak joined us from St. Stephen's University, where he serves the Dean of Theology and Culture. We hope you'll take the time to listen and learn with us. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to day two of Listening and Learning, and uh, we're glad that Brad has decided to come back. That's good. And you've all decided to come back. Welcome, everyone. We're going to be stepping in in just a moment. Our sessions today go from 10 till 12, then we'll take a lunch break from 12 to 1, and then the last session, 1 until 3. Uh, I was thinking last night, uh, not everybody loves to go to microphones to ask questions, so if over the course of the day you have a question that you'd like to ask Bradley, as we come to the end of today, probably between 2.30 and 3, we'll be taking questions. If you prefer to write down a question and just hand it to me, I'm going to be sitting just over here or at lunch. Uh, absolutely feel free. Write down a question, and uh, Brad will address as many as we can in the time that's allotted for Q&A. But I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to pass it over to Brad to continue with teaching today. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for... Um, a beautiful day outside, and how the sun has risen again, and it's just a reminder of your faithfulness to us, that as much as there's lots of times we're not faithful to you, that we're not present to you, but all the time and in every way, you are faithful to us and present to us, and you are here with us. And we pray, Jesus, that today would be a day of, of peace, that there would, be, this would be a, there would be a sense in this community of diving in deeper, uh, more into the things that you want us to be reflecting on. And as we prayed yesterday, ultimately, Jesus, we want to be more like you. We want to reflect your love and kindness, grace and mercy to those around us and to the world in which we live. And so we humble ourselves now, Jesus, and with charity and generosity, we make space for Holy Spirit, what you want to do through our time here together today. And why don't we just, why don't we just pause for a moment? Uh, I don't know if your morning has been like mine, but I've not yet had a moment of quiet at all. Uh, so why don't we pause? And let's bring to Jesus the things that are on our hearts right now. St. Francis talks about, and if you, those around have heard me say this, where you come to prayer and sometimes your, our brain is like a tree full of chattering monkeys and we just need some calmness. Um, and so bring that to Jesus. Say, Jesus, boy, I feel, I feel distracted, I feel happy, I feel upset, whatever it is, let's bring that. Um, in intercession to Jesus and ask him what he would have us do with the things that are on our minds before we move into learning. So let's just be quiet before the Lord together. Maybe some of us just need to take a big, deep breath. If you've been listening to your breath, maybe your breath has been really shallow this morning and rushed and hurried. So take a big, deep breath. And relax our shoulders and be, even in our posture of our bodies, prepared to receive today. Father God, thank you for loving us so well, for embracing us and calling us deeper and deeper into life. 
Thank you that you are not a dealer of death, that you are the giver of life. And as our source of life, the well of living water from which we can drink and be satisfied, would today be a day where we drink deeply and be satisfied in you. And I bless each one of you in the name of Jesus, with his presence, with his guidance, and with his peace over your hearts. The peace of Christ to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back. Um, how many of you weren't here last night? Okay, so <clears throat> you might not even be able to get the recordings and all that. It won't matter. Everything I said last night is in some way in, in my book, A More Christ-like Word, but also today's teaching um, won't depend on it because it can. I've deliberately made it standalone lessons so that you can get along without having been here. But most of you were here, and you'll remember that last night, one of the things I emphasized right at the beginning is that Jesus is the Word of God, and that we have often use the phrase Word of God to talk about the Scriptures, but the Scriptures are Christ's inspired witness to the Word. He's the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh. And so, you know, I remember uh, memorizing... Hebrews chapter 4, because it talks about the Word of God. And has anyone else memorized that passage? For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, It, 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 the New Living says it cuts, it cuts deep into our innermost thoughts and desires. It exposes us for what we really are. And so, I memorized that as a little boy because the Word of God, it's like a sword. And so we would have a sword drill. And the way you did a sword drill is you'd hold your Bible up by the spine so you couldn't get a finger in the pages. And then the leader of the, the game would say, you know, Hebrews 4, verse 12. And then we would all say, Hebrews 4, verse 12. And then the leader would say, charge! You pull down your Bibles and you would race to see who could find the verse quickest. And if you got there first, you could stand up and read the verse. And I was awesome. But Nancy McMillan was a little more awesome. We competed. Oh, man, it was hardcore. We'd go to camp. We'd go to Sunday school. We'd do sword drills. And to this day, I think she's probably still got a little edge on me, which I resent deeply. But we thought that verse was talking about the Bible. We didn't read the next verse. Here's a principle. When you're reading a Bible verse, read the next one. Listen to this. It'll blow your mind. I, I, 
Now it says it. The pronoun there could be he, she, or it. They did pronouns then, you know. For the word of God is full of, this is New Living Translation, is a very good translation because it, it actually had Hebrew and Greek scholars, but also English scholars, so that they could make the whole Bible roughly even in terms of English at about a Time, time Magazine level. Really, really good. So this is a fresh version for me. It says that the word of God is full of living power. It's sharper. It, he, she, is sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into our innermost thoughts and desires. It, he, she, exposes us for what we really are. Very next phrase. Nothing in all creation can hide from him. Him. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. This is the God to whom we must explain all we have done. The word of God that is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the Bible says so. So now we don't need a Bible? No, we need the Bible to say so because it points to him. He speaks to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He speaks to our hearts through the body of Christ. And he speaks to our hearts through the testimony of the scriptures. These three witnesses, scripture, body, spirit, come together to testify to the word of God who is Jesus and we said he's the word of God because he is what God has to say about himself. Okay, now a little theology. Come study with me at St. Stephen's University. And you'll find out we believe in the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in essence. And undivided. One God, not three. In three persons who are indivisible, and all that they do in this world, they do together. Then Paul says in Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God and all of the Godhead. What's the Godhead? That's the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. All of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. In other words, when you're looking at Jesus, you're not just seeing God the Son. You're seeing the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through Jesus because he's the revelation and image of the invisible God. To, Jesus says in John 14, to see me is to see the Father. He's not saying I'm the Father. But he's the image of the invisible God who is Father. And so, Jesus, I mean, Jesus is a big deal. Did you notice this? I want to be Jesus-y. How about you? All right. Why did I tell you all of that? Well, the more I become obsess obsessed with the person of Jesus and make him, uh, you know, the center of my attention, affection, and worship, the more 
I look at his life and his teaching and his ministry and his way of being God. And they end up coming to the conclusion that God looks like that man who hung outside Jerusalem on a cross. That's our clearest image of God. And that image of God, who's radically forgiving, utterly self-giving, completely co-suffering, that means he suffers with us. He draws up the human condition into himself on the cross. And he speaks out to his father over, over Pilate and Caiaphas, over Judas, over the soldiers, and he says, Father, forgive them. We are seeing what God is really like there. And he wasn't like Zeus, and he wasn't like Molech, and he's not a death dealer. He's a life giver. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is God enfleshed forever. Okay, that's basic theology. It's pretty fun, though. I like to proclaim him. Here's the problem. When you come to know the God who is revealed in Jesus and has always been exactly like Jesus, reading the Bible gets hard. So last night I did share a lot about my deep love for the scriptures and how I practiced it as a little boy. How I embraced it through my growing up years and began to study it for myself through uh, Bible college and seminary. And after nine years of taking every single Bible course, five semesters of Greek, which is just enough to let you know you don't know Greek. That's like what I know. I don't know Greek. That's what you learn in five semesters. Um, the Bible became problematic for me. And it wasn't because I'm like woke or something. I'm not, you know, it's because of Jesus. Jesus problematizes the Bible. Jesus does say things like, you heard it said, but I'm telling you. And Jesus actually pushes back against his own scriptures, sometimes disobeying them, if you read the law carefully. And that offended the biblical people. Deeply. In Moses' law, there are certain things that no one should do, especially not the Messiah, and then Jesus did them, so therefore he's obviously not the Messiah. Uh-oh. Well, I believe he's the Messiah, and the Pharisees didn't. So now the question is, are you more committed to Jesus than you are to the scriptures? Or are you going to make the Jesus bow to the scriptures? Or do the scriptures point to and bow to Jesus? Now I want to tell you how this was very emotional for me as I'm reading scripture. This is my actual story. you know. So I'm going through the text. I'm reading the Old Testament again. And I get it. Some of the horrible stories are just horrible stories because God wants you to know people were being horrible. There's no problem with that, right? I'm not going to struggle when, when someone does a bad thing and God says that was a bad thing. Okay. 
The problem is when you get to passages where God commands you to do the bad thing that Jesus says you can't do. And you go, but I thought, I thought God is like Jesus. How can Jesus forbid something in John, but if he's the image of God, why is God commanding that bad thing in 1 Samuel? And so, don't worry, we're going to come to some ideas that will resolve this in a way that helps us retain the Bible instead of throwing it out. That's where we're going. But to get there, we actually have to be honest with what's in the text. I think we need to study the Bible on this one, right? So, often being biblical doesn't include reading the Bible. Today we're going to include reading the Bible. So, here was... I had this moment, so remember, I, 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 just a little background, I grew up, I grew up in a Bible-believing Baptist church for 20 years, and that's where I learned that the Bible is, um, uh, you know, my final authority. But then I went and I became a minister in the Mennonite church for 10, church for 10 years, I married in you always feel like an outsider. I mean, you just feel like a Gentile forever. But <laughs> the food is great. And they taught me that Jesus is our final authority. They taught me that the Bible is not a flat book where you just point your finger to any page and it all means the same thing. That the Bible is more like a mountain and on the pinnacle of the mountain are the Gospels where we read the words of Jesus Christ and everything before and after, points to him, points up to him, bows to him, and submits to him. So you need to know the red letters. And so Mennonites are like super into the red letters, especially the Sermon on the Mount. And so we can even see the apostles doing this all the time, and Jesus himself, that the words of Christ actually do have more authority than the words of Moses. It's not flat. When a narrator in Samuel says God is like this, and then Jesus comes along and says, actually, God is like this, speaking as God and all, then the passage in Samuel needs to, needs to bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ when God came in the flesh, okay? So I'm going to come back to, that's where I'm heading, but I just need to say it now because, because the passages that stumbled me were so troublesome. So I get to 1 Samuel 15. I'll read it from this translation. One day Samuel said to Saul, I anointed you king of Israel because the Lord told me to. Now, listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came out of Egypt. Hundreds of years earlier, now, 
go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. The men, the women, the children, the babies, the cattle, the sheep, the camels, and the donkeys. And the word destroy there in Hebrew is like a sacrificial offering to God. So Saul mobilized his army at Telem. There were 200,000 troops in addition to 10,000 men from Judah. Then Saul went to the city of Amalek and they lay in wait in the valley. Saul sent this message to the Kenites. Move away from where the Amalekites live or else you'll die with them. For you were kind to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites packed up and left. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites. From Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt, he captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but he completely destroyed everyone else. The men, the women, the children, and the babies. Saul and his men spared Agag's life, kept the best of the sheep and the cattle. Oh, shouldn't have done that. The fat calves and lambs shouldn't have done that. Everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. You know, men, women, children, and babies. I'm angry about this. Then the Lord said to Samuel, this is genocide. Is genocide okay? Is genocide holy? Well, if God says so, could Jesus Christ command you to kill a baby? And if he did, would you do it? I hope not. Because your moral compass was given to you by God, and it's invited into the text. This is the crazy thing about the scriptures. It demands that you bring your heart to the text that it will break and even resist what it's what the narrator is saying about God if what the narrator is saying is different than Jesus that's hard to swallow for an evangelical but I understand that a lot of evangelicals would rather throw God under the bus than the Bible and that's bibliolatry don't worry we'll get there But it's troubling. Like if you're troubled right now, you're living 10 years of my life where I called every Hebrew scholar I know. And I, I called theologians. I called my teachers. I called my colleagues. Remember, I'm like nine years into post-secondary theological training. And I'm messed up. Lord said Samuel, the Lord said to Samuel, how do we know that? Well, the Lord said it to Samuel and Samuel said it out loud, and the narrator's telling us about it. What, is the, what does the narrator say that Samuel said that the Lord said? I'm sorry I ever made Saul king, for has not been loyal to me, and has again refused to obey me. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. The, that translation doesn't give you a sense of him tossing and turning in anger, but he did. Early next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him Saul went to Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went to Gilgal. Samuel finally found him. Saul greeted him cheerfully. 
Hey, the Lord bless you, he said. I've carried out the Lord's command. Liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> then what is all the bleeding of sheep and lowing of cattle, I hear, Samuel demanded. It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep and cattle, Saul admitted, but they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We destroyed every, everything else, cheerfully. Men, women, children, and babies. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, listen to what the Lord told me last night. What was, what was it, Saul said? And Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself and are not the leader of the tribes of Israel, the Lord has anointed you king of Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission, and he told you, go completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they're all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for plunder and do exactly what the Lord said not to do? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back the king Agag, and I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought back the best of the sheep, blah, 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 right? And, he said, and then Samuel says this. What's more pleasing to the Lord, burnt offerings and sacrifices, or your obedience to his voice? For obedience is better than sacrifice. In the Old Testament, later on, the prophets will the prophets in the Old Testament will push back at this. And they'll say, actually, mercy is better than sacrifice. So here, death dealing in the name of God is more important than sacrifice. The prophets say, no, mercy is better than sacrifice. And then Jesus comes along later and says, go and learn what this means. I demand mercy not sacrifice. Mercy, 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 because the mercy of God endures forever. So I'm still messed up with Samuel then. What do I do? Cut this out of my Bible? Pretend it's not there? Just get offended? Call it the God of the Old Testament? Ah, that's kind of a lame liberal thing to do. I take this book seriously, and I want to know how to read it seriously. And so I go to see Archbishop Lazar. This is this monk. I mentioned that I moved from, I, I was a Baptist for 20 years, Mennonite for 10 years. Then I planted a church for people on the margins, uh, addicts, people with disabilities, the poor. And I led that for 10 years before I blew up. But, uh, and ultimately found myself learning at the feet of an Eastern Orthodox monk, Archbishop Lazar. And I was right in the middle of this struggle. And I said, I, I have called everybody I know in my evangelical world, and they cannot give me a straight answer. Would Jesus say this? Could he command that? And so you've got to understand, the, the Eastern Orthodox Church are the stewards of the ancient church fathers and their theology. They, they don't talk without quoting what the disciples of John and his disciples said. You know, this is how they talk. And they have a very, very high view of Jesus. And he said, I, I said, uh, how could God have said this? And he like laughs at me. It's like, God didn't say that. The narrator says that, Sam, that's, that God said to Samuel that he said that, but we know better because Jesus came. And, and he said, I said, 
but, but it's the word of God. Oh, man. I've never seen an index finger grow like this before, but it was impressive. And in my face, Gandalf. No. The thunder starts. Jesus is the word of God, and every scripture that claims to reveal God must bow to the living God when he came in the flesh. What? <laughs> so say that again. I'm going to tweet it. <laughs> Jesus is the word of God, and every scripture that claims to reveal God must bow to the living God when he came in the flesh. Jesus gets the last word, and Jesus says no to death dealing, and he's been the same yesterday, today, and forever. But then why does it say this? Because God let his children tell the story. That's a Pete Enzism. God let it. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull this together, but I gotta show you one or two more texts that really rattled me. So I'm in Deuteronomy one day, and in Deuteronomy, it's it's telling them what to do as they're invading the land and wiping everybody out. And he says this: Who's he? Ask yourself if Jesus could command this. When you come to a city, offer the city peace. And if they accept your offer of peace, take them all as your slaves. If they don't accept your offer of peace, kill every man in the city. And then, if you see a woman who's attractive to you, take her. Strip her of her people's clothes, cut her hair off, cut her fingernails off, cut her toenails off, and you can have her for one month. And after a month, if you still want her, you get to marry her. But if you don't want her, don't kill her, just send her away. I guess this was an improvement over raping everybody. Could Jesus Christ have made that command? But it's the word of God. No. Jesus is the word of God and every scripture that claims to be a revelation of God must bow to Jesus when he came in the flesh. Why does it say that then? Because God let his children tell the story. And his children are still on the way to meeting him. They're still really trying to work out how God is active in their lives. They know he's with them somehow in their wins, in their losses, in their lives. They, they, and they're trying to work out who he is. And it's quite a debate. It's the Jews, the rabbis, hashing this out. Priests versus prophets. Prophets versus each other. And they're all... Uh, the, the, they're... You know, it's a bit swirly, okay? Till Jesus must come. He must come to be what God says about himself. Now, you can see Jesus himself dealing with this. Um, in 2 Kings chapter 1, there's a story where King Ahaziah wants to 
wants to uh, send out and uh, what does he want to do? Okay, you know, he's in Samaria. That's important. And he sends messengers to the temple of Baal, Zebub. Beelzebub. The god of Ekron to ask whether he would recover. The angel of the Lord told Elijah, who was from Tishba, go and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, why are you going to the Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to ask whether the king will get well? Is there no god in Israel? And so the king wants his soldiers to go get Elijah. And they're going to arrest him and bring him in. So 50 soldiers go to get him, and Elijah sees them coming, and it says he calls down fire from heaven and destroys them. So the king sends 50 more, and Elijah sees them coming, and he calls down fire from heaven, and he destroys them. And so he sends 50 more soldiers, but the lead, of that, the lead soldier there, the captain, he says, don't call down fire from heaven. We're just coming to get you, Okay. Don't shoot the messenger. And so he doesn't. And Elijah goes with them. And then they have this confrontation with the king. Who sent the fire down from heaven? Was that God obeying? Or was it God serving? Or is it God acting? I mean, it says from heaven. So that probably means God, right? And it's like on demand, so the prophet can do this. So he calls down fire. So that must be a God thing, right? And to be biblical, why don't we do that? Because Jesus has shown us God's not a death dealer. So this comes up in Luke chapter 9. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and, he's, and he tells his disciples, I want you to go to this village in Samaria and tell them I'm coming. Oh, Samaria. So the disciples go to the village in Samaria, and the, the people in Samaria actually oppose them. And here is what the disciples say, starting Luke 9, 51. As time drew near for his return to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Well, that's interesting. It mentions heaven. Hmm. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival, but they were turned away. The people of the village refused to have anything to do with Jesus because he had resolved to go to Jerusalem. And when James and John heard about this, they said to Jesus, let's get biblical, biblical. Lord, should we order fire down from heaven? to burn them up, and some manuscripts add, just like Elijah. They'd been reading their Bibles, having a good old Bible study, getting biblical. Hey, Jesus, should we, by which we mean you, why don't you call fire down from heaven like Elijah did and burn these Samaritans up like Elijah did? Because the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And some manuscripts add, and he said, you don't know what spirit you are from. 
what does that mean? What does that say about how Jesus is reading 2 Kings chapter 1? He's saying the spirit that sends fire down from heaven is not God's spirit. <gasps> Jesus, you're so unbiblical. So these are the things that were troubling me. And Archbishop Lazar was, was the first to help me with it after years of me begging people to help me from my tribe. And they had, they had nothing to say. So here I'm in this little monastery with an old Gandalf-looking monk, and he's saying, Jesus is the word of God, and every scripture that claims to reveal God must bow to the living God when he came in the flesh. Okay. What do we do with these texts? So he pointed me to John 10.10. 10. What does Jesus say there in red letters? Some of you memorized it. It is the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. Who steals, kills, and destroys? Who destroys? Who destroys? It's the thief that destroys. Who's the death dealer? It's the thief is the death dealer. Who's the one who sends down fire and kills people? Well, Jesus says, but I've come, and I'm God, to give you life. And life more abundantly. So, I started ruminating on that as a template for how to read the scriptures through the person of Jesus. When I'm reading a scripture, I'm like, what do I do with this? I, I have to start there. And I began running into children who wanted to know this stuff. So the stuff I was struggling with after nine years of seminary and 20 years of pastoring, nine-year-olds are asking me now because they have learned you get to ask questions, and I didn't get to ask those questions. They've become critical thinkers who really care about Jesus, and they can see the difference between life-giving and death-dealing, and they want to know what's up. And guess what? They're reading their Bibles and seeing what I saw. Uh-oh. So I meet this little kid named Malachi. We're going to go on holidays with his parents to Hawaii for three days. And his mother comes to me and says... I apologize in advance. I'm like, for what? You're about to be interrogated for three days by the beach about the Bible. And we, Malachi and I, worked this out together. And he, he and I created a system for, so that the Bible would be safe for him to read. Oh, it's dangerous, but it's also meant to be like that, it, that, that, that he won't throw the Old Testament out because it's a bad God. That's not what's happening. He needs to learn how to read those stories because he does read them. And I can't, I mean, you know. So he developed this. I started to run into other little nine-year-olds. It was weird. Nine-year-olds just out of the woodwork little girl nine-year-old and her parents contact me and, and they're like we don't know what to do she's she's got a bible and she's nine and she 
has an uncanny way of finding out the worst passages. For her 10th birthday, she wants to know what a prostitute is. Because Rahab's her hero. Hospitality industry? I don't know. Well, like, what do you say to a kid who's nine and they're reading, they're reading the R-rated stuff? And she finds the worst of it, the last story in Judges, like a man throwing out his, uh, you know, uh, was it his wife or concubine? I mean, to be just gang raped. And then he chops her up and says, and this kid's, the, the parents are like, what, should we be hiding our Bibles? She keeps finding them. I mean, there's a reason the Jews said, you, there's certain books you can't read till you're 30. I mean, they really said that. And she's, a, you know, evangelical. So she's nine and she's got the Bible. And um, so, gratefully, Malachi taught me how to train her to, how to read the Bible. And here's, here is the, it's very simple. And if it works for a nine-year-old, maybe it'll work for us. Number one, memorize and completely believe with your whole heart, John 10, 10. It is this thief who steals, kills, and destroys. I have come to give you life, and that more abundantly. The enemy is the death dealer. God is the life giver. Okay, so these kids memorize that. Got it, got it. Do you really believe it, though? Yes. Do you still believe it when you open 1 Samuel 15? Yes, I do. Do you still believe it when you read that passage in Deuteronomy? Yes, I believe it. God is a life giver. The thief is the death. Okay, good, 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 good. Second, second. Then why does it say that? You know the answer now. Because God let his children tell the story, and they didn't know Jesus yet. God let his children tell the story, and they didn't know Jesus yet. And it's only in Jesus where John says, remember, nobody has seen God at any time but God the only Son who's in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known, right? So, so that's the second thing. God inspires his people to write scriptures that will point towards him, but they write it in a way that reflects their real beliefs about tribalism, warfare, what a king is for, what a chieftain does. They said, this is like... Conan the Barbarian. Like we got to, you might want to give them a break. If you're God and you see Conan the Barbarian and you need to get him from where he's at to believing in peace on earth, goodwill to men, this could take some time. And he's going to not abandon you even when you think he told you to, you know, go kill all those people. It's like, ah, I'm still going to be with you. And I'm still going to help you work this out. And I'm going to show you. And so you get King David, who is definitely, definitely Conan the Barbarian. And suddenly he's saying things like, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so um, that's how far he's removed your transgressions from you. And, and... And it's like, David, you're starting to get it. Even while he's still killing people all over the place. But he's starting to get it. And he, he, is, he is starting to look forward to Jesus. And he starts singing songs that actually are prophecies of Jesus. It's amazing. It's amazing the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament drawing these barbaric people groups towards 
towards like someone that, you know, Mother Teresa looked like or something like that. You know, it's, it's just amazing. So that's the second thing. He lets his children tell the story. They don't know Jesus yet. But here's the third point. By the Holy Spirit, we find Christ in these stories. That's hard. In some of these stories, it's really hard. Sometimes it's just negative. Like, here, here would be like the one where you're cutting off the women's toenails and hair and all that. Where is Christ in that story? Nowhere. In other words, Christ doesn't do that. But a lot of them, it's just really amazing if you let the Holy Spirit show you the light of Christ. So this little girl, <laughs> she's awesome. She contacts me one day her, through her dad. Her dad will text me what she's getting. And, and she, she says, tell Brad I've been reading Jeremiah. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and she's totally unrattled because she knows how to read now. It's so great. This will make your hair stand up, or at least mine. So she says to her dad, I'm reading Jeremiah and Lamentations. And Babylon has come, and they've laid siege to Jerusalem. And they're running out of food. And the people are starving, and they're even eating each other. Maybe you should hide the Bible from her. What are you doing? Or just give her a New Testament or something. But no, she's reading this. And she's seeing the slaughter of all these people. They overcome the city. They totally destroy it. And, and she's totally unrattled. I'm like, she said, first of all, here's what I know. It's the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. But I have come that you'd have life in that more abundantly, even though some verses in Lamentations make it sound like God did this. And some don't. There's pushback right in the book. Second, why does it say it like that? Because God let his children tell the story. But now she was really excited because she said, I found Jesus in the story. Like, really? Where was he? He was in the tears of Jeremiah. And then she says, don't you remember that Jesus sat outside Jerusalem thinking about it being destroyed again? And he wept over Jerusalem. That was Jesus in the tears of Jeremiah. I'm like, oh, you know how to read the Bible. So I'll leave those three points with you. Remember, John 10.10. 10. God lets his children tell the story even though they hadn't met him, Jesus yet. And look for Jesus in the story. Look for Jesus in the story. So, checking our time. Oh, we should have a break now, right? Let's take a short break now. Well, I want to ease back in and uh, with a reading from my godfather, David. Um, who's best friends of Archbishop Lazar. He was, a, he was a, a Lutheran from right around here. His dad was a pastor for years and years. <clears throat> so this is from his booklet. The Bible and the Land of Shades. But it's really reading the Bible as a life-giving word. 
I'm just going to steal his thunder and go to his conclusion. And this will take a couple minutes. I would like... I would like to make a modest suggestion. That's how he talked. I would like to make a modest suggestion for at least one of the registers in which these texts, he calls it the First Testament, may be read. My suggestion invites the faithful to a particular spiritual discipline. When they read the hard texts of the First Testament that speak of the anger, wrath, and judgment of God, including those that seem to be the wrathful words of God spoken directly, but are instead revelations of human passions, of our appetite for divine justice assigned to God. I mean, that's Samuel right there. This discipline invites us to put on the mind of Christ. You know, John 10.10. 10. In all of our hearing, of all of the scriptures. We're invited to listen to and for the lover of creation speaking to us an illuminating word in the unfolding of all the narratives in the Bible. Each of us is encouraged to grow in the spiritual life so that Christ's way of being, his teaching, his heart and mind, the fullest expression of human nature, comes to be the prism through which we see creation and minister to the world and the mind through which we read both testaments. Those who claim to have met Jesus Christ have come to know all we know of God in the rabbi who walked the Valley of Galilee and the streets of Jerusalem. This is a central patristic teaching. Patristic remembers early church. The only theology of God we have is contained in Christ. Our theology of Christ, curiously enough, is an understanding of what it means to be a human being. See, he doesn't just show us what it is to be God. Jesus shows us what it is to be fully human. Created and sustained by the lover of the world. Any qualities, actions, or attributes we might claim as divine that were not part of Jesus Christ's walk on earth must not be confused with what the church teaches about the divine nature, what we know of God, and may claim with confidence must be grounded in the revelation of the gospel. You see, we don't just get to take Deuteronomy 18 and say that's what God is life, no, like. No, that's not Christian. It might be biblical, but it's not Christian. To be Christian is, what was it? To root, uh, to ground our revelation of God in the gospel. Not in our latent or explicit theologies of God. Not even as Father. As if the Father and Christ have separate characters. Like good cop, bad cop. Where Jesus has to save you from his angry, God, angry dad. No. We believe in one God. And those attributes are not divided from each other or from the Trinity. The Hebrew Bible was the scripture of Jesus Christ. 
The first testament is a revelation that continues for us. So you see, we don't throw it out, even when it's hard. It is not a partial revelation, it's, it's, but we only understand it through a glass darkly until we meet the rabbi on the roads of Galilee, on the road to Emmaus. One of the great tragedies of the 19th and 20th centuries in biblical studies has been the limitation of our vision to parsing the text. It's like with your little scalpel, right? Arguing for its truth in terms of facts. In this way, um, the liberal modernists and the evangelical literalists mutually contributed to a common misreading. The question is not whether a given narrative is part of the revelation, but rather what the narrative reveals to us of the spiritual life as it unfolds in the lives of human beings. All biblical revelation, along with the revelation of the Holy Spirit, is a light shone on our passions and thus on our way of seeking and knowing the world and our presumptions about God's ways and God's will. Revelation illuminates God's love for us, but we need it also to shine a light on our personal and collective darkness, the shadows in our lives, our relationships, our moment in history, our place in culture. If God is one and undivided with Jesus Christ, as Christian tradition has articulated in the doctrine of the Trinity, then we're invited by the mind of Christ to read the First Testament through the example and teaching of Christ's love. And the spousal co covenant, it fully expresses. This spousal covenant, marriage covenant, right? runs through the whole of the scripture, and it's the counterpoint to the idolatry that anchors many of its narratives. So you'll have a narrative that has an idolatrous view of God who's a tribal warrior who wants to wipe out other people and their babies, and in the midst of that, in the midst of that, you have God, the divine lover, who wants to be married to his people, and everyone is his people. If we claim the Trinity, then it's impossible to see in God the Father anything that we do not see in God the Son. And that's why I kept asking, could Jesus say this? And if, and if he can't say it, neither can the Father. Uh, Jesus, now we're just going to get really like straightforward. Jesus never killed anyone. <laughs> but he allowed himself to be crucified precisely to end the cycle of uh, death-dealing contagion. You know, our pandemic of violence. And all of his judgments that we read about in the New Testament, Second Testament, when read with care and freed from our passions are descriptions of the kind of alienation and loss that results from death dealing and missing the mark. So, yeah, David, David is really clear. We're not talking about two gods in two testaments. We're talking about the one God revealed in Jesus Christ who has always been about uh, his deep love for humankind. Remember, so, so now what I want to do is I want to give you some examples of just simple 
simple lessons from Scripture, and you don't have to know this all or be a scholar. Most of us aren't meant to be. You have better things to do. We just need a couple nerds. And so I am training, you know, Wade to be a nerd. If you had a, if you had a church full of Bible nerds, it'd be like terrible and dangerous and destructive and you'd be useless. But if you just have a couple of them to say, by the way, it's going to be okay. We studied this and you don't need to unless you should be signing up for St. Stephen's. Okay. But for example, as a Bible nerd, I, I talk to other Bible nerds, and, I'm, uh, and, and some people, like the nine-year-olds, who are deeply concerned about the way God appears in some of these texts, there, there are responses if you go deep enough. And so I don't want you to hear me saying, well, God is like Jesus, so you don't need to read the Old Testament. It's like, no, read it more carefully, and you will be blown away to the point where you know for sure the Holy Spirit has inspired it without in any way disparaging the character of God. Example. Why would God kill all those people and animals in the flood? I hear that from little kids all the time. Like, if God's not a destroyer, what do you do with the flood? Well, here's one way to read it. And sometimes that's all it is. We come with Jesus, our rabbi, you're not, by the way, you're not invited. As a Christian, you're not invited to the Old Testament without Jesus. No good Jew would read their Old Testament without a rabbi. Ours is Jesus. To skip Jesus and go there yourself, it's just not Christian. To be Christian is to follow Jesus as your sponsor into that text. And he will be your rabbi. So, with Jesus as a rabbi, here's what I find out. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world, including all the seas and the dry land, divides it up so it's all together. And he continually says, and he saw that it was good. Very specific phrase. He saw that it was good. And this is a Hebrew phrase, and I don't even know what it is because I don't know Hebrew, but I know a nerd who does. And so Matt Lynch at, at Regent College in Vancouver I mean, he can read the Hebrew Bible just and translate it without English there. And he says, he saw that it was good, he saw that it was good, he saw that it was good. And what it means is good for people to live in. It's not just like cool or beautiful or excellent. It's specifically, it's habitable for people. It's a good place. It's a garden for us, right? Fast forward to Genesis chapter 6. And it's very specific about what the sin was. The sin of the people that led to the flood was human violence. We so escalated human violence in this world just before the flood, that same phrase, God looked at the world and he saw that it was ruined. Ruined for what? People to live on. And the, the earth wouldn't even give forth fruit. It was we, through violence, had made it uninhabitable and were so close to doing it again. What is God to do? If he does nothing, 
in the story world of Noah, let's call it that, um, we go extinct. So the flood narrative, we'll pause there. Now, everyone had a flood narrative in the, in the old world. Everyone had, had a flood story. But what mattered was how you told the flood story. So the pagan nations around Israel and across the world, their flood stories, like the uh, Gilgamesh epic and some of these, they all, they all had this feel to them. That there's go these gods in heaven, and they really don't like people. They find them noisy. And so they decide, we're going to destroy these noisy, annoying people. They just irritate us. But then somehow, somehow there will be a man or a family, and they make an ark-like structure, and humanity actually is saved. And sometimes it's through some other being that warns them and so on. But that's generally the idea across the whole world when they would tell a flood story. The Jews come along and they say, actually, God loves people. And he didn't want the world to be ruined. And he wanted to, re um, to restore it. And as Brian Zahn said in, in, in his poem, uh, he needed to give the world a bath and recreate the world. So what does he do? He calls Noah. And Noah not only begins building an ark, but he's a preacher of righteousness who's calling people to repent and if they would have, we might have had a fleet of arcs. But, so it's a recreation story. I get it. There's still a lot of weird stuff in there. But one of the amazing things is the rainbow. The bow is like a warrior's bow. And, and, and after the flood, God hangs up the bow. He hangs it up. I'm not using that. Now, some would even say that under, the, under covenants, you would make a covenant with somebody with a penalty on yourself if you broke the covenant. And so some, some scholars think God even makes the rainbow so the, rain, the bow is pointing up at heaven as a threat to him if he ever does this kind of thing. You know? So there's all sorts of interesting nerd things there. But what we can say is this. You don't have to read it in a way that God is a nasty monster who's just impatient and wiping everybody out. No. And, 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 like, did it literally cover the whole earth? Or did it cover the part of the earth that was the region they knew of? Did he really put all the dinosaurs on there? Like, who cares? What's the point? Stop ruining the earth with your violence. Repent, everybody. Not... Build an amusement park that has water damage, even though it's called an ark. I mean, this is just, we've got, we've got to get our heads back on straight here, the scripture. Okay, another example. So Joshua, you heard, uh, those who were here last night heard how Oliver Cromwell used Joshua as inspiration for genocide in the UK. Um, he was going to purify the land the way Joshua purified it of all these other tribes. I was telling um, Wade about this last night. He probably knew it, though. But on the one hand, the book of Joshua has an author, right? Somebody wrote Joshua or compiled it. But the amazing thing about Joshua is it's not just glorifying religious conquest. It's a critique of it. And here's how it does it. And if you read slowly and carefully with a nerd, you're going to see 
two narrators in the one book. One narrator, narrator we're going to call Sarah Sanders Huckabee. What, what was she? She was the, she would be the press secretary. So one narrator is the press secretary. And the press secretary's job is to kind of give you the propaganda of the state, right? All right. So you're reading Joshua, and the press secretary says these things. God is on our side. Two, he's going to go wherever you go, and you're going to win every time. And you're going to win everywhere, and you're going to win completely, and you're going to win very quickly. And then there will be rest in the land, because I'm going to conquer all of your enemies, and he names the tribes. And the press secretary goes further and actually says, and in fact, this is what happened. We defeated these tribes, and now there's peace in the land. Um, another way of talking about this is triumphalism. God is on our side. We are triumphant, and we're triumphant because, uh, you know, He's given us our enemies into our hands, and, and he, he's sort of our tribal warrior god. And, and the fact that it actually claims that it happened is very interesting. But there's another narrator. Who is your favorite embedded press reporter? Oh, who's that guy on CNN with the silver hair? Anderson Cooper, live from Iraq. And Anderson Cooper, he, we'll call him the embedded press reporter, the investigative journalist, who's on the ground telling you the facts and saying, you know, I know what the press secretary said, but here's what happened. And it says so in the Bible. God wasn't always on our side. We didn't always win. Sometimes we lost. And in fact, these victories are coming very slowly. And we didn't beat everybody, and we didn't win all the land. Our victories didn't extend to the borders at all. And the, our enemies are still around, not only at the end of Joshua, but even into Judges. And then he even says, in fact, here's some of the tribes that are still oppressing us. And he lists the same ones that the press secretary told us they had beaten. In alternating chapters in the same book, there's two possibilities. Either the author who gathered these two conflicting reports is a complete idiot who doesn't see he's just contradicted himself this chapter contradicts this chapter, like, directly. Or, he's an inspired genius who has set those two narratives against each other on purpose as a critique of religious violence. It's not an inspiration to triumphalism. It's questioning it at a very deep level. You're going to beat everyone. 
and then the Gibeonites trick them into peace and make a covenant with them. It's like, whoop, that one didn't work. You're going to wipe out everybody like Jericho and then, whoop, except Rahab, your enemy, not only saves the day um, and becomes a hero of faith, but even enters Jesus' genealogy and is like a great-grandmother, you know, like of David. And you're like, what? Um, you've got these kind of cracks in our triumphalism. And But my, my nerd friend from Regent, he says, careful, it's not just that the press secretary is making what the triumphalist is saying untrue. It's still partly true. God is still with them. He's not going to abandon them, even in their losses, even in their sin. He is going to work with them, and he's going to develop, you know, he, he is going to bring them a land, you know, and all of this stuff. He's like, okay, so, and I'm like, oh, this is like worship on a Sunday morning. We sing some triumphal songs. We sing some lament songs. It's like the Psalms. And we're like, we do sing God is on our side kind of songs. And victory in Jesus, you know. And, and then we're like, I cry out for your hand of mercy to heal me. I am weak and I need your love to free me. And oh, Lord, my God. <laughs> oh, but yes, you're good. You're so good to me. You're so good to me. And you're like, oh, this is how life works. And suddenly Joshua doesn't feel shallow and evil. In fact, it's the word of the Lord for right now. In all of our us-them kind of battles, whether it's Christians against Muslims or, you know, Americans against Russians or right versus left and left versus... All that us-them stuff. And it's like we get... We start stomping around victoriously and pretty soon we're doing bad stuff. And God wants to problematize our lives with a book like Joshua, if you read it carefully. Um, I'll give you another example that's really tender for me. Uh, I'll be super personal here. So, I'll start with the, the Psalms. One of the great things about the joining the Orthodox Church is we always chant the Psalms. In other words, we sing them, and it's kind of um, the translation we use when we're singing them or chanting them. It's kind of Old Englishy. This has a couple really important effects. When you're chanting in Shakespearean English, it reminds you that the Psalms are poetry and that you have to read it as poetry, not literally. And so, do do trees actually literally clap their hands? No, they don't have hands, and they're not clapping. Then what are they doing? Well, it's poetry about how all creation rejoices in its creator. That's really good. It's beautiful, right? And so, so I'm learning in the Orthodox Church to, you know, to chant these psalms. I should just pick one. Okay, it's New Living Translation, so that won't be as good, but... You know, God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear even if earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. Let the oceans roar and foam, let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. A river brings joy to the city of our God, the sacred home of the Most High. 
God himself lives in that city. It cannot be destroyed. God will protect at the break of day. The nations are in uproar. The kingdoms crumble. God thunders and the earth melts. And he goes on. He says, uh, be still and know that I am God and I will exalt myself among the nations. Thank you very much. <laughs> right? And so you, you're, we're singing this stuff and then you realize 40% of the Psalms are lament. How long, O oh Lord, why have you abandoned me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm a worm and not a man. Why do you hide your face from me forever? Well, you take that literally? Would God really hide his face from you forever? Are you actually a worm? No, it's poetry, but it's poetry from the heart that expresses our sorrow, our sense of abandonment from the God who never leaves us or forsakes us. But you've got to say it because it's how you feel. And God says, come, sing to me how you feel. Pray to me how you feel. Because it's the only safe place to do it. Because if you don't, you'll repress it and it'll come out in really ugly ways like depression and anxiety and all of that stuff. And so I began to learn that, that it's not just about reading the, the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, but it's about praying it that way. It's about praying the scriptures in the presence of God and in the presence of his people. And so then, then in, um, I became what's called a reader in the Orthodox Church. And, um, and, and what a reader does is a reader looks, uh, they, they just practice chanting a lot. But there's a pre-service prayer time where we, every single week, we, we sing the same six psalms. And we're singing them in the context of the grand narrative of redemption, right? So we've got a big, the big story of the Bible. And so what they taught us is that every part of the Bible fits the story somewhere. So let's say you have an angry psalm or a lament psalm where you're really sad and hopeless. Where does that fit in the big story? Well, in the pre-service prayer time, I'm singing that psalm as Adam and Eve locked out of paradise. And I'm angry and I'm sad and I'm brokenhearted and I feel alienated. I'm playing their part in the big story. And also, I'm the myrrh-bearing women and the apostles locked out of the sealed tomb of Jesus on Saturday, where you're despairing because you thought he was the Messiah, now he's dead. And what would you sing then? What would you pray then if you had words? Well, the psalm gives them to you. So here I am on a Sunday morning, and I'm supposed to be chanting the, the angry psalms and the sad psalms and the worship psalms that, that will later on lead me to communion. In a couple hours. But I got to get there. I got, I'm going to relive the story almost like a passion play. And as I'm singing these, this one psalm that you do every single week, it's the one with the worst verse in the Bible in it. Can you remember the worst verse in the Bible? It's in the Psalms. Yes. Yes. Smashing my enemies' babies 
heads on the rocks. Why do they make us chant that one every week? Because it's the worst verse in the Bible. And it's part of the big story that's going to get you to the resurrection. But you don't get to go there unless you're super honest that that stuff could be in your heart. Malice. That's, called, that's malice. And I have malice in my heart I don't even want to look at. So, I'm chanting that. Segway. <laughs> My son went through a terrible divorce. It's much better now, just saying. Him and his ex are very good friends. But there was a period right then where she had cut us off, not only she had cut us off from our first grandchild. And it was a death of a dream to us. The state of things at that moment was that we were never going to see her again. She's in Korea. I haven't, she's six now. I haven't seen her since she was two months old. This is the worst thing in the world. And what it, you know what it needs? It needs the worst prayer in the world. And so here I am, <clears throat> and I'm chanting this. And Lord, would, would you take my enemy's baby and smash their head on a rock? And the Lord speaks to me, and he said, what shall we do when your enemy's baby is your granddaughter? Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have That's why that's in the Bible. It dug down into my deepest hatred and my malice, and it found the lament under it. And it said, cry out for mercy for, for, for your granddaughter, for your, for, for your, your daughter-in-law. Cry out for mercy for the malice in your own heart that would make you a murderer if you could be one. Because you know what? I dug up some murderous feelings. He's like, in, in two hours, you're going to have to come to the Eucharist and you don't get to have any malice in your heart or when your lips touch the cup, you are giving me Judas' kiss. Could you say I have a very deep trauma attachment to that verse now? And as we began to pray mercy over and over and over our ex-daughter-in-law, the mom of my grandchild, had a major revelation of mercy. It took months. It took thousands and thousands and thousands of prayer. But the kind of faith she'd grown up in had no space for the mercy of God at all. And suddenly she got it. She met Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And it began to repair the broken relationship. And I'm like, wow, that's what those verses are for. 
Whereas maybe at one time I would have been so upset with him, I'd stroke it out of my Bible. Wow, God of the Old Testament. No, no, the malice of my own heart. So remember, these scriptures are about Jesus and they're about me and they're about you. Does that make sense? So what did we do there? We did the, uh, we, we did, you know, Noah's Ark is about a recreation story. Joshua is actually a critique of religious violence. And these, these terrible psalms of lament and of hatred even are, uh, are prayers to help heal our own hearts. Um, really, really important stuff. Now I'll give you one really super encouraging, uplifting Example. So I was at a I was at a discipleship training school. Most of the people there were, let's say, eighteen to twenty-two year olds. You know, they and uh, they wanted to do a gap year or two and, and not go to college quite yet. And so they went on a discipleship training thing. And there was a um, there was a young woman there who hardly came to any of the meetings. Once in a while, she'd pop her head in for a little while, and she would, and so she came and talked to me, and uh, her name was Megan, and she's from Montreal. And she said, I became a Christian when I was 14 years old, and on the day I became a Christian, I was bedridden with chronic fatigue. The day she became a Christian, and she said, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, stole my whole teenage years, gone. I can't get them back. And she's heartbroken. Like, where is God in that? I'm like, I don't know. Now she's like in her early 20s. And she can only come to a few hours a day of meetings total. Because that's all the energy she had. And where is God in that? And she wanted me to pray with her. I'm like, I don't know what to pray. Like, be healed? We've tried that a thousand times. Sometimes it works. Hadn't for her. So I, we listened to the Lord together, and, and I just said, you know, I, what I think I could do, I, I can't heal you. I don't even know if I can pray for you, but I, I could sit with you and cry. And she's like, okay. Um, so I took her very feeble hands, and we just cried for a while. And then it occurred to me that her tears needed words that she didn't have. And so I said, um, it wasn't Mel Megan, it was Melanie. I said, Melanie, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to read a psalm out loud for me. And so I opened Psalm 6, and because she's, she was, uh, fr French was her first language, and she had her French Bible along, I said, I want you to read it in your first language as a prayer. Psalm 6. O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your rage. You see how he starts with an image of God that's quite angry? Have compassion on me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, Lord, for my body is in agony. I am sick of heart. How long, O oh Lord, until you restore me? 
Return, O Lord, and rescue me. Save me because of your unfailing love. For in death, who remembers you? Who can praise you from the grave? I am, and now she's like sobbing. I'm worn out from sobbing. Every night, tears drench my bed. My pillow is wet from weeping. My vision is blurred by grief. My eyes are worn out because of all my enemies. Go away, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my crying. Oh, so now he's not the one doing it to her? Maybe David is processing. Maybe God's not the enemy. Maybe God sends away the enemy. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord will answer my prayer. May all my enemies be disgraced and terrified. May they suddenly turn back in shame. She says, can I pray it again? And she does. And then as she's praying it the second time, I said, Do you, I, uh, could I get you to pray Psalm 13 too? So should we go to Psalm 13? Oh, Lord, how long will you forget me? See the image of God there? God who forgets about people in pain. He starts it, but he starts processing. Will you forget me forever? How long will you look the other way? Do we literally think God has ever done that? No. But that's how it feels, and that's what we need to bring to them in prayer. How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long? How long, how long uh, will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the light of my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. Oh, so we've moved from the one who abandons and turns away to the one who has unfailing love. I will rejoice because you've rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he's been so good to me. And then we just maybe cried a little more, if I remember right. And she wasn't healed. And um, the next day, I did a little prayer exercise where we all meet Jesus at the cross and we hand over our burdens to him, whatever they are. And then we just ask for a gift in exchange God, if I give you my sorrow, what will you give me? If I give you my grief, what will you give me? That kind of thing. But I, I, so I just led the whole group in this, and I took off uh, to the airport. And, but I didn't forget about Melanie. I, um, I kept praying for her. I had a list of people with chronic fatigue. I hate that disease. Some of my best friends have that disease, right? I don't get it. And so they're on my list, and I pray for them. And Mel's on my list. And, you know. I actually had a bunch of Mel's on that same list. It was weird. If your name's Melanie, watch out. Um, and then out of the blue, like, I get a Facebook message, like, four years later, and it's Melanie. And there's a picture of her with a guy and a baby. And I'm like, what's this? And she goes, I don't know if I ever told you. But the day after we prayed, when I sent my burdens to the cross and I received God's gift, I was healed. I'm like, what? I've been wasting four years praying for you? And I got my life back and I found a man who I love and now I have a baby with him and it's going great. I'm like, could have told me. And I wish it always worked that way and I can't package it. 
And then I, you know, I only heard, ever heard from her one more time. It was a few years later with a picture with a second baby. And I'm like, maybe sometimes Psalms 6 and 13 are a good thing to pray. Whether you get healed or not, at least, at least you're given words to your groans and your tears. And this is why maybe we, when we were in grade five, we got the New Testament and the Psalms. And a good little lesson there is this. It's not always what the Bible is saying. Like, why do you forget me forever? It's what the Bible is doing, how it's functioning as I pray it. It's, what's, it's not always the words that Jesus is saying, but it's what he's up to as he's saying them. And so we place, pay close attention to the words, but we're also saying, God, how is this about Jesus? And how is this about me? Now I'm going to add one more thing before lunch, if there's time. Yes, there is. <clears throat> um, I've mentioned the early church and some of their teachers. One of them is a guy named St. Gregory of Nyssa, N-Y-S-S-A. Very important early church teacher. He, in fact, if you've ever heard of the, the Nicene Creed, that's, that's in the Eastern churches, that's their major creed, and also all the Catholics and Anglicans. I mean, this is their doctrine of faith. And it's sort of like it gives you a really powerful summary of what we confess in our baptism. But it also gives you, like, a lot of freedom. Because if it's not in the creed, it gets to be debatable. In fact, if you impose a doctrine on somebody else that's not in the creed, you're a heretic. Huh. Isn't that interesting? But, like, the traditions I grew up with is like, no, we need to supplement these. It's like, why? So we can divide from others, of course. But what Gregory of Nyssa saw was that they had a very big church already across the world. And they're like, we need to answer some very basic questions. And the rest is, the rest is for, for discussion, even passionate debate. But it's not dogma. Dogma is, I believe in one God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true gods, who for us men and for our salvation came down from earth and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who uh, uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered, was buried, on the third day rose again according to the scriptures. <gasps> what scriptures? Old Testament. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified and spoke by the prophets. About what? About Jesus Christ. And in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, doesn't mean Roman Catholic, means universal. And... Um, and I, I, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. I look forward to the resurrection and the life of the age to come. That's the, that's the Nicene Creed. I could be a lot of things, even a jerk, 
but I'm not a heretic because I believe in the creed. That, that Gregory was the final editor for that agreed together. Here is our answer to Jesus' question. Who do you say that I am? The rest is details. It took them 300 years to get to that. So that's pretty good. In 300 years, they only had eight things for you to confess at your baptism. They distilled the message, right? So that's pretty exciting. So why did I bring up Gregory? Well, Gregory did a study of the Psalms that is super interesting. Um, <clears throat> in your Bibles, so this is, I was talking about, like, with my daughter-in-law and, and my granddaughter, that's about how the Psalms are about me. But how are they about Jesus? Yes, you'll see phrases on Jesus' lips that are from, that are from the Psalms, for sure. That part's easy. But what Gregory noticed was at the beginning of a lot of your psalms, you have what's called a superscription, those little letters. One of the most common superscriptions at the beginning of a psalm is for the choir director. Well, that's a pretty bad English guess at a translation about a Hebrew phrase that we don't actually know what it means. Wouldn't it have been great if some rabbis before the time of Jesus had actually translated that phrase for us when they still knew Hebrew? Let's say if they knew Hebrew, they knew what the phrase meant, and they translated it into a really common language. Let's say Greek. And what if they had a Greek Old Testament that Jews could read if they didn't know Hebrew? Guess what? They did. This is the Bible of the apostles. When the apostles quote the Old Testament, most of the time, they're quoting that translation word for word. So we actually know what the Greek means. So how arrogant of us to say we don't care what they thought. It's like, wait a minute. These are like rabbis before the time of Jesus who knew Hebrew. They're telling us what it means. And we put for the choir director. You know what it actually means? It's ta telos, unto the end. And the word end there is, isn't just like finish. It's finished, accomplished, fulfilled. This psalm is unto the telos. That's the word Jesus used from the cross. It is finished. And so what Gregory said is, I want you to understand that every single one of these psalms that says, for the choir director, he didn't say that, every one of these psalms that say, unto the telos, Jesus is our telos. He is, our, he is the one who has fulfilled these things. He is the one who completed it on a cross. He is the one who accomplished salvation for us. So every single psalm that has for the choir director, just start looking for Jesus. And he says, in them you will, you'll always begin to see either um, the psalm fulfilled, some part of the psalm fulfilled in the life and the passion the resurrection of Jesus, or the way Jesus will complete you. That you will come to fullness in Christ. That you will mature into a Christ-like man or woman. That you 
that the psalm is fulfilled in you as Jesus shapes you into his image. Well, that's a good hint. And wow, it just, you just start seeing Jesus everywhere. And you realize, oh, that's, that's why it's in our Gideon's Bible, the Psalms. So, um, an example of that is like Psalm 55, and you just see this lament. It's like, oh, if I had the wings of a dove, I'd just love to fly away because, you know, my best friend betrayed me. Huh. And you start seeing Judas in the psalm. And, okay, was it literally about Judas? No, but the psalm is, the psalm is a shadow of the thing to come. The shadow of the better thing, the shadow of the worst thing, the shadow of the cross, the shadow of the resurrection. So it's just a little hint for you. If you want fun for the next little while, just go look up all the choir director psalms and see if you can find either Jesus in there or yourself being shaped into Jesus' image. I think now it's lunchtime. We have four minutes. You want to do anything for four minutes or should we just go have lunch? I would love to pray for you. Um, so, I mentioned that I ended up with the Eastern Orthodox who teach me some of this stuff. That's, there's about 350 million of us. And we have all types. We've got fundamentalists. We've got mystics. We've got activists. We've got conservatives. We've got progress. I mean, it's a big church, right? So it's just another kind of Christian. But um, we have some beautiful prayers that I pray every day. And I want to pray one of those with you today. O heavenly king, O comforter, spirit of truth who is in all places and fills all things, treasury of good gifts and giver of life, come dwell with us. Cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O good one. All holy trinity, have mercy on us. Lord, wash away our sins, pardon our transgressions, visit and heal our infirmities for your name's sake, for you are a good and merciful God and you love mankind. Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. Glory to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen.